Let's take our Bible and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. We will not be here very long though, so I hope you brought your Bible and I hope you're ready to follow along. Oh no, I'm going to look at a bunch of verses. It's going to be a long sermon, long message. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, we, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, we, we covered, I, I spent a message on Wednesday night um, talking about the purpose of the law. How many of you remember that? We talked about the purpose of the law, and it was to, what's the purpose of the law? Somebody give me a short summary. Exactly. It's to let us know what is good, what is evil, and to help us, cause us to have the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law. The law has no provision whatsoever to take sin away. There's a, there's a covering for it when you get into the sacrifices and stuff like that. Uh, so we looked at the law, and uh, to whom was the law given? Somebody help me with that. To whom was the law given? Come on now, huh? Israel. It was given to Israel. It was not a, the, the law was not a general command that God gave to all of humanity. He gave it to a specific group of people. And so even though the law was not given to, to us as the church, as Gentiles, yet we learn a great deal from the law, and that's how God communicated His truth through Israel. He gave them the oracles of God. That's what Romans tells us. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to go to Exodus 20, and uh, what I'm trying to do is, is go through and, and study and, and do kind of a brief study on each of the Ten Commandments. And uh, the, we're going to look at the first one tonight. Now, again, the, the commandments are, a, are, really, are really pivotal, are, are, is a turning point. And in fact, you know, we talk about dispensations and, how, and God's dealing with men changes one of the ways God got one turning point or, uh, or you know, uh, a point at which God kind of turned the page in the way He dealt with, with, uh, with mankind, specifically with Israel, was that when He gave the law on Mount Sinai. Now remember, these commandments that we read in chapter 20 were audibly spoken from the top of Mount Sinai in the hearing of all of the uh, children of Israel. They heard it. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we studied this. So let's look at chapter 20, verse number 1. The Bible says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, the Lord identifies Himself. Notice He says in verse 2, I am the Lord thy God. That capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, a reference to God's name as He revealed it to Israel, the I am that I am. You know, this is an important point because one thing, even shortly after this, when the, when the children of Israel make the golden calf, what do they say? They say, of this golden animal that they have made with their hands, they say, these be thy gods which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. They said this was the Lord. They misidentified the Lord. And so uh, verse 2 is kind of the introduction until we get to verse number 3, which is, the ten, which is the Ten Commandments. The first one says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. 
Uh, even the much maligned law of God, the commandments of God, yet they show us so many wonderful things about you, about your standard of righteousness and holiness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the law of God given to Israel, preserved for us. Lord, we thank you for that foundation that indeed uh, has caused us to understand and know what sin is. And I pray, Lord, as we look at your word uh, tonight, that you would bless our time together in your word, that you would teach us, instruct us, and especially, Lord, we pray two things, that you would help us learn more about who you are, and that you would also help us to understand more of the gospel because we look at the law of God. So bless our time together. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now let's do a little bit of clarification. If you will look at Exodus chapter 10, seeing how you're already in Exodus, I want to just clarify what this verse means. What this verse means. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, this is not a statement that the Lord wants, the Lord is not saying that He wants to be first among the gods that Israel held. He's not saying, of all the gods that you have, I don't want any of them to be before me. He is not saying that. All right, so just throw that out of your mind. When we read it, it can, we can mis, uh, misinterpret and misunderstand what the Lord is saying. That is not what He's saying. All right, let me, let me explain to you why that, that's true. Look at Exodus 10 and verse number 3. Because you'll see the same construction, same word used, this word before me. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long, now this is what God is saying to Pharaoh, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Now, he's not saying, Pharaoh, you need to stop humbling yourself more than me. No, 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 no. That's not what it means. He's saying, how long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself in front of me? That's what it means. The word before means in front of. Okay? So go back to Exodus chapter 20. It says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So this is not a statement that the Lord wants to be first among the gods. This is a clear statement that the Lord was to be the only God that Israel held. He was to be the only God that Israel held. In other words, not before as in priority, but the Lord says before him, thou shalt have no other gods before me as in before in front of his eyes. In other words, when God looked at Israel, he did not want to see another God. Now, um, that's, we just got to clarify what the Lord is saying. This is, this is this first commandment. It's the reason why it's so important. This is, as you go down in the commandments, what you'll find is the first set of the commandments deals primarily with one's relationship to God. Then it deals with one's relationship to one another. But then as it goes on, uh, it, deals, it starts to deal like the last commandment, as an example, starts to deal with a, a matter of the heart. The inside of a man. But this, as a, this is a pivotal command. Here's why. 
Because this is the first great statement of monotheism in all of the Bible. This is a direct statement of monotheism. That is, that there, the, the teaching, the truth, that there is but and only one God. One God. Now later on, as an example, look at Deuteronomy, if you would. I told you we wouldn't stay there long. Chapter 4. So what I'm saying is, you look at X, you look at Genesis, you look at the whole book of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus. You do not see the Lord say you would think, and in the, in the beginning parts of the Scripture, God would say, "By the way, I'm the only one here," but He doesn't. Not until Exodus 20. Exodus 20, even Exodus 20, verse number three doesn't doesn't say He does not say, "I am the only God." But the command, the, the, the prohibition against having any other God is built upon that truth. Okay, that's what we'll see tonight. So Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, this is the first time in the Bible in which God explicitly, or the Scripture rather, explicitly says that there is but one God. Deuteronomy 4, verse number 35. Page is stuck together. It says this, Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, He is God. There is none else beside Him. Verse 39 says, Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, He is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. We could go to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60. We could go to Isaiah 44, verse 8. Isaiah 45, verse 5. Isaiah 45, verse 6. Verse 14, verse 18, verse 21, verse 22. Isaiah 46, verse 9. 47, verse 8, and verse 10. Joel chapter 2, verse 27. All of them say that. They all say, I am the Lord, God speaking. So you can't say what a man is saying of God. You say, this is what God is saying of Himself. He says in one place in Isaiah 45, He says, I am the Lord, there is none beside me, I know not any. I, in other words, I who am omniscient, I know everything there is to know, there is none beside me. I stand alone. I stand alone. This is the exclusivity of God. And this is the basis of the command, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The God of the Bible is alone as God. There's none like Him. There's none similar. There's none, there's not a plurality. He stands alone. He stands alone. And the reality is that his, what is called the absolute exclusivity of God. That's His nature. That finds its roots in, in uh, the creation story, in the creation story. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I mean by that. We'll see this more in just a minute. You can, go ahead, you can actually go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. From, a, from a, an apologetic point of view, some of you are interested in that. I'm thinking Brother, Brother Joseph, Brother David, Brother Ben probably is interested in that. Miss Judy, right? Something that is created cannot be, by definition, 
by biblical definition of, of God. So, so I just have to stop and ask this. What is God? Okay. What is God? That's, that's kind of where we have to start. So we say there is but one God, but the question must be asked, what is God? What is a God? What does the word mean? Because, of course, we see it in our Bible as uh, God, referring to the true God. And then we see all these other, we call them little God, you know, little G-O-D. It's the same word. It's just in English we have capitals and, and other languages don't have capital. Like Cambodian doesn't have capital. So if it's talking about, the Bible's talking about the God of the Bible, the true God, or it's talking about a false God, it's the same word used. The word, the word is the same. And that's the way it is here. So what is a God, though? Because it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. A God is simply defined, and you, you, this might surprise you. A God is simply a being that's above a human. That's how the word is used. Technically, it's this. A God is a being that is regarded by men, that's the key, as any supernatural being who has power over nature or human affairs. That's what a God is. Now, you can cram a whole lot of things that people call God. Remember, this is not what God says God is, but this is what humans regard as a, a divine being. But here's the problem. From a biblical perspective, something that has been created cannot, by its very nature, be God. The definition of the true God excludes that. We'll see that more in just a second. Now, when we get to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, of course, we know there's no explanation. There's no identification. Like, we don't learn God's name here. We, don't learn, we really don't learn His character here in verse 1. We don't know anything about Him because Genesis chapter 1 is not trying to tell us who He is. It's trying to, it's trying to it assumes what He is. That's what Genesis chapter 1. There's no explanation about God here. There's no explanation. But what you do know from reading Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Before that first verse, what is there? What is there? Nothing. There's not, think about all the things that are created in the six days of creation. There is no, there is no earth. Before verse 1, there is no earth. Before verse 1, there is no space. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's no stars. Haven't been created yet. There's no human beings, of course, no animals, no plants. There's no atoms, not this kind, but the little kind. There's no, there's no light, there's no darkness, there's no space, there's no time, there's nothing. Nothing in the material universe exists. God has not made it yet. Before verse 1, nothing except God. So here's what that means. That means that everything, or rather put it like this, nothing that was created can be this God because he was already there before anything was created. That helps us, that gives us a little hint about the definition. When we say the God of the Bible, what are we talking about? We're talking about the one, the being, who Existed before anything 
anything. The Bible uses the simple, the, the very simple term, beginning. And to us, you know, beginning can be the beginning of something, but this is the absolute beginning. The God of the Bible, the true God of the Bible is the God who was already there before anything that was created was created. That identifies him. That identifies him. And then someone in apologetics, someone will ask a question, and I, I see you guys probably have seen videos and stuff on social media where people, that they ask, well, you know, this, a college student, which this seems to be an obvious question and an obvious answer, but a college student will say, well, okay, so if God created everything, who created God? As if that's a gotcha question. That's, that's actually an easy one. <laughs> you get into other questions that are, are a little more uh, com- complicated. But listen, God by his very nature, according to how he's revealed in the Bible, does not have a beginning. He was already present at the beginning. There was no starting point. There was no cause of God. But when you say who created God, you're supposing that he had a beginning and that he was created, but he wasn't. See, the premise of that question is wrong because he had no beginning. And besides that, the Bible reveals that God created the entire material universe. So therefore, none of those things that he, cre- he created can- could have created him, you see. The logic doesn't work. That's why they say, you know, in, sci- in science they will say, you know, this is the fundamental problem for those of you that like apologetics. This is a fundamental problem with co- people coming at God with that concept of God, is they come at God as if science, as if the physical universe that they understand is the absolute law. They, that, 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 and that is the reality of, 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 what, of what is behind a lot of people's rejection of God is science, which is, the obser- which is supposed to be anyway, the observation of the created universe, right? That's what science is supposed to be, the knowledge of the created universe. Science is supposed to be humble enough to acknowledge what it cannot know, but that's not allowed anymore. That's not allowed anymore. Science is God. And so because science is God, science should be able to explain where God came from and who created God. But that's not, that's not how it works. God was present before science. And so, so when you ask the question, who created God? You say, everything had a beginning. No, you're, you're talking about this, this created universe that God made. Yes, all, everything in this had a beginning. But God's not in that. He is the what the, the technical word. Anybody know what that, that's called? The what? The first cause. The first cause. But how do we know God? How do we know? You know, we'll see in a minute. There are so many. There's there are many gods. Things that are called God. You know, you have the gods of Buddhism, uh, the god of Buddhism. You have gods of Hinduism. Many things are called God, angels, all all kinds of things in in other cultures and things are called God, not just one. How do you identify the right one? Like in Cambodia, that's what, that's sometimes, that's the the answer, the question we would get. Well, how do you, you know, we, our our God is Buddha and your God is Jesus. How do you know your God's right and, and our God's, and our God's not right? How do you know your God is true and our God isn't? Do you know there's a biblical definition of who God is? And this all goes back to Exodus 20, verse 3. We can't 
We can't obey that command, thou shalt have no other God before me, unless we understand who this one true God is. Simply put, he is identified by his position as the creator. The true God is whom? The true God is the creator. You want to know who he is? He's the creator. So God, a God, the word God is not just, look at Jeremiah chapter 10. God is not just someone that's greater than a human being. The true God is the one who created all things. Jeremiah chapter 10, don't take my word for it. The Bible actually defines Almighty God by that, by that term. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10 says this. If you read verse 9, you'll see the contrast being made. Silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz, the work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder. Blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At His wrath, the earth shall tremble, and the nation shall not be able to abide His indignation. Thus shall you say unto them, The gods, listen now, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by His power. He hath established the world by His wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by His discretion. You see that? The Lord identifies a false God by whatever, is, whatever that man might call God that did not create the heavens and the earth is a false God. That's what he says. And by contrast and by extension, he says, and therefore the God who created the heavens and the earth, that is the true God. That's the true God. So God, the true God, is identified by his position as creator. We could go into Isaiah 45, verse 5, Acts 17, verse number 24, talks about gods that are made by the hands of men. You see, God has what are called essential attributes. These are a few of them. God is eternal. He has no beginning. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because, say again, He told us in Genesis 1.1, which is the absolute beginning of, of everything. He's already there. Besides that, the scripture actually says from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And furthermore, God is eternal. He exists outside of his creation. He was already there. He brought it into being. Number two, God is self-existence. He has no cause or maker. That's what we also see in Genesis 1. You say all from Genesis 1, 1? Exactly. And number three, God is omnipotent. And you see that from all the things that he created. So if you think of the most marvelous, the most powerful, the most uh, magnificent, the largest, whatever, you know, they talk about the sizes of stars and galaxies and the multitude of galaxies. How many of you have ever seen that? Uh, the image, the, the one especially famous Hubble image where the Hubble Space Telescope, which is orbiting the Earth, it opened its shutter, because it's a camera, right? It opened its shutter for, I want to say it was like two weeks, at one point, one black spot in space. 
it opened the shutter for like two weeks. You can find this picture on the internet. And it received all the light from that black spot for the entire length of time the shutter was open as if it was one photograph. And when that photograph was received and analyzed and you zoom in because it's ultra high resolution, you zoom in to what is black in space and it, it magnifies into literally millions, not of stars, but of galaxies. These are observable now with, because of technology. These are not observable with the naked eye. These are observable with scientific instruments, which is, that's not against the Bible, is it? Right? It's not against the Bible. Observable. Now, you think of it, you think, all right, you, the, these things boggle the mind. You, even even a, a million, but a million galaxies in one tiny little spot of black space. God made that. What does that say about him? Yeah, I mean, the Bible says his knowledge, his power is just absolutely unsearchable. I mean, it's such puny words for such a magnificent attribute. But see, that... Those are what are called his essential attributes. Those things, those characteristics of the Lord that make him God. And that also exclude everything that is called God. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at that real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're hurrying. First Corinthians 8, verse number 4. Look what the Bible says here. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know, listen to what he says, the Christian now, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. All right, that's pretty clear. How many of you agree with that statement? How much of the Bible is dedicated to the question, that, to that question, whether there actually is another God? <laughs> I mean, Israel, all the way up until the Babylonian captivity, they grappled with that question. They constantly served what they thought were gods. And yet in Christianity, it's settled. It's settled. Nobody questions this. Notice how, how he's identified, though. He says, verse 5, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But unto us there is but one God. Who is He? The Father of whom are all things. You see that? You see how He has identified? How is He identified? By His creative acts. That's who God is. The one who created all things. But notice what it says in verse 5. As there be gods many and lords many. In my notes I put, there be gods many and lords many. So we talk about the, the, the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, which, which presupposes there is but one God. But we know in this world there are many gods. There be gods many and lords many, right? Called of men, created of men. Look at Galatians. Turn over to the, to the right, just a few pages. Chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Verse number eight. 
Now, I know I'm picking out little parts of verses and things, but there's a lot of good stuff in parts of verses. Not You don't exclude the context, but there's a lot of good stuff kind of you grab as, you, as you're walking through it, right? Chapter 4, verse 8 is a good one. Look at what it says. Now, in the context, he's talking about how the Galatians, how they came to know Christ and the change that was made in their life. Look what he says. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which, what's the next two words? By nature are no gods. What does that mean? They served those things that were by nature no God. Here's what that means. That by their very nature, these things that are called gods, that these Galatians used to serve, right? The Roman gods, the Greek gods. By their very nature are disqualified from being called God. They're disqualified from what we might call Godhood. Godhood. Because in order to meet that criteria, to be caught to have what we might call, and I'm using this loosely, Godhood, you've got to meet the biblical qualifications. So anything that doesn't meet those qualifications, what does that mean? The Creator, eternal, self-existent, omnipotent. These gods that they serve, all these, these, uh, these fantasies of these gods. And listen, I, I know we look back at Greek and Roman mythology. Some of you have heard of, uh, you know, you studied that in school, especially when you went to public school. You probably studied Greek and Roman gods. And we study it as, as kind of a, a, a cultural, you know, Western civilization type of thing. People believe that. How many of you remember in Ephesus, there was a, a riot and they, 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 brought, they brought Paul to the, to the, amp, to the theater, right? What did they, what did they, what did they yell for, for, for was like two hours on end or something? I think it was two hours in Acts. What did they yell? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Diana is one of those, one of those uh, myths that we read about in school. People worshipped her, worshipped that God. But she, here's the thing. She's not, she doesn't qualify. She, she doesn't measure up. She doesn't meet the criteria to be worthy of the name God. Anything that doesn't meet those criteria that we see in Scripture, regardless of what it's called, is not God and cannot be God because by, by its very nature it can't be. And you know what this means? This includes every spiritual and material thing that exists. That means angels, devils, uh, in the Bible, you have cherubim, seraphim, men, animals, trees, rocks, planets, stars. Why? Why can't those things be God? People want to honor those and worship those. Why can't they, why can't they do that? Here's why. Because all of those things are not the Creator, are not omnipotent, and are not self-existent, and are not eternal. Those things are all, every one of them without exception, is created. Now go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now we're on the subject of God's many and Lord's many. Genesis 3. The serpent talking to the, the woman, Eve, in Genesis 3, verse number 5. 
You're all familiar with this passage. I'll just read verse 5. The serpent says to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan is the first one to introduce the possibility into the human mind that there could be a God beside the one who had created Adam and Eve. Chapter 3, verse 5. That was Satan's idea. This is the first instance of the word gods in its plural form. Note, though, that Satan did not say that they... This, and this is often misquoted. Verse 5 does not say, Ye shall be as God. That would be bad enough. But this says, Ye shall be as gods. So in, in, in one sentence, in one sentence, the devil introduces polytheism the false idea that there are other gods beside the true God. And also, he implants this seed into the woman's mind that she can be like God. In other words, remember our definition of God at the beginning? It's, it's a superhuman being. That's, what it, that's essentially how it's used in the world. Is this, it's anything that's greater than a human being. It's called God in some place. Like even as an example, even Buddha. In, in Buddhism, Buddha is understood to be a man. He was, an, he was a man from India. All right? He's understood to be, by Buddhists, they know he's a man. But he achieved a level. He achieved enlightenment. And so he's worthy of worship. You see, he's a superhuman. So the devil introduced and he introduced the, the possibility into the mind, something they never even considered. No doubt, had never even considered. They knew of only one God. It probably never entered their mind at all that the, even the idea that there could be a different one, especially in the state of innocence. Because they knew God. They, he created them. They knew Him. And Satan said, deceive them by saying that not that they would be as God, but as gods. So not only did he introduce the false idea of multiple gods, he also, in his infernal introduction, he indicated that Adam and Eve would be those gods. Think about it. He introduced the idea of multiple gods, and then he said, you can be those gods. which was trying to convince them that they could be more than what they were. They were but human beings. They could never be anything but a human being. You know, when you go to heaven, you're not going to be anything but a human being. You know that? You're not going to be an angel. You're not going to be anything. You're going to be a human, a glorified, supremely happy, eternally happy human. But you're going to be a human. That's your nature. You can't be anything else. That's what you are. Boy, this, get, this rubs the wrong way with the, a lot of ideologies these days. Satan introduced from Genesis 3 the idea that Exodus 20 verse 3 was given to combat. Now, what does that tell us? So, 
I know this is elementary stuff. I know I know this. I know you all know this. You all believe there's just one God, and you know all these fault, these things called God aren't God. I know this. I know all that. I'm not telling you anything new. But what does this teach us? What does the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, that God expects to Israel, he said, there are no other gods, and so you don't need to have any other gods, right? That's, that's what's being conveyed there. But what does that tell us? This commandment means that because there is but one God, number one, all others are therefore false. All others are therefore false. You say, well, the Buddhist might be offended. Or this person or that, you know, the Hindu, they have mil- literally millions of gods. Won't they be offended at that? Maybe. But that's what that means. There is but one. And the second thing is it means that every, listen now, each person, you know, you think of there be, remember what I said, there be gods many, lords many from First Corinthians. Everybody's got gods they worship. You know, think outside of the American mindset. Think, you know, transport yourself, like Priscilla went to India, right? All right. Is that in any way, that, that is hard, it's hard to comprehend what they think of as God, right? It's just, there's so much. It's so different. The, the idolatry and, and the, every, I mean, everything is worshipped. Everything. Animals, people, angels, spirits, figments of their imagination, Everything. Uh, objects are worshipped. Rocks, trees, planets, stars, everything. Listen, mankind never runs out of things to worship. As many people as there are, there are gods. There be gods, many lords, many. But this commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, tells us that every person's faith in his or her God is not equally valid. That's what we call pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that things that are all different are all equally valid. God's commandment excludes that. What are we left with? We're left with the God and we're left with the way to Him, which is Jesus Christ. Notice this interesting note. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this, For there is one God. Y'all know this verse, right? For there is one God and one mediator between between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Notice how it starts. There is one God. But lest we get too haughty in the fact that we know that there's just one God and we're not ignorant of all these created things that are proclaimed to be God, The Lord reminds us in James 2, verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. They're monotheists. They know the the gods are false. There's one last thing that this, this shows us. The fact that the Lord says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because there is but one true God... And we, we know him, he's identified by his creative acts. That is, he created the world and everything in it. 
That means all people are responsible to him. Regardless of whatever their cultural God is, regardless of whatever the religious system that they were born into, because he created them, Right? He created the world upon which they li- in which they live. He created every he created themselves, the person them, the, himself. And because there is but one who did that, he is actually God of all. They don't acknowledge him. They don't know him. And I didn't even know him. I knew of him, but I didn't know him when I was younger. None of that matters. None of that matters. When God says I am, I am the Lord, there's none else. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It excludes everything else. Everything, it makes all of it vain. All of the, the plurality of worship, the forms of worship, the gods that men worship, all of it's vain. It just blows away like smoke. Because there is but one God. And He's the Creator. And you think about those in those countries, how, you know, we just accept that that's, that's their culture. But every moment, every moment of their life, every act of devotion that they're giving to a God who is by nature not God, cannot be, doesn't meet the criteria, is an offense to the God who said, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Think about that is an offense to him. See, when the Bible says God is jealous, it, it, it's, not, it's not the petty jealousy that we're, that we're familiar with as, as human beings. God is jealous because he really is the only one. <laughs> like, all the others are imposters. They're fake. And so, he says, I'm a jealous God. But how, you know, that's, that's a, a terrible thought to think about. How, you know, the law, purpose of the law, to make men see that they are sinners, to make them have the knowledge of sin. You know, some, some writer once said, you know, we breathe sin, we drink it like water. And, you know, that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what happens. That's what the first commandment shows us in this world. Let's pray together.